today on 2C Vans. So um, where does where does biogeochemistry show up in our daily lives? What are some biogeochemical processes that Ooh. that we might experience? Oh, that's a great question. That's, that's a good question. I have no idea. <laughs> because I'm not as smart as her. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Hello and welcome to 2C Fans at Moat Marine Laboratory. I'm Haley Rutger. And I'm Joe Nicholson. And uh, this is your podcast for marine science and education here at Moat. And we have a, a wonderful guest today uh, who drove up from our Florida Keys campus. Long drive. Um, we are really happy to have her. Can you say your name and title, please? Sure. My name's Heather Page, and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow here at Moat Marine Laboratory. Very cool. One of our, that postdoctoral re- research fellow, one of our sort of younger next generation next PhD. Geners, yeah. Yeah, PhD scientists. We're really pleased to have you. Are you the only one we have right now, or are there other postdocs that you know of? There are a few other postdocs, but I'm the only one studying this year. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. So, uh, how did you end up here? Um, so, when I got towards the end of my PhD, I started looking at opportunities to do either research or outreach and education. And I came across Moat Marine Lab online and it looked like the perfect combination of the two where I can actually follow my own research interests as well as be involved with teaching and public outreach. Well, that's very cool. Perfect. Yes, absolutely perfect. Well, where are you from, Heather? What part of the country are you from? So I actually grew up in Ohio, the landlocked state. Really? Okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Nice. What part of Ohio? Can I get that personal? Yeah, sure. Cincinnati, uh, Cleveland? Cincinnati, actually. Really? Yeah. Cincinnati, okay. Because yeah. it, it's either either Columbus, Cincinnati, or... Cleveland. Cleveland, yes. Yeah, yeah the, other, the other sea. Okay. Well, I, I feel like the Midwest continues to be a feeder, feeder for moat scientists. A lot of people here come from the Midwest. Really? <laughs> they do, yeah. And the more and more we're finding... Yes. To be yeah. true. It's just nice to escape the winters of the Midwest and it is. somewhere warm. Yeah. So then where did you go to school? So I did my undergraduate education at University of North Carolina Wilmington. Oh nice. And uh, then I went over to Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego for my PhD. Wow. One coast yeah, to the other coast. Keep yeah, back keep, and forth. keep bouncing back. <laughs> now you're back on the east. Mm-hmm. So um That's good for us. Yeah, it's good for us. Now, how long have you been, how long have you had your current focus? First of all, tell us what it is. Yeah, what what is it you do? Yeah. Just for a refreshing start, I, I promised not to look at anything that had Heather Page on it. So Jeez. I would come into this blind. Okay, I didn't do that. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure. So I study um, how marine organisms and ecosystems respond to ocean acidification, which is a climate change issue facing our oceans. Yeah, and I, I, when I was when I was reading about you, as I prepare, and I didn't, <laughs> um, I read the word biogeochemistry yeah. as a, as a part of your or as an overarching focus. I mean, what does what that word mean? What in the world is that? Yeah, yeah, it's a big word. Um, so, biogeochemistry is basically the study of how biology. Yeah. Geology and chemistry affect one another. Oh man! So multidisciplinary. Example, yes. Oh, big word for Joe. Multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. So you have to have some ability in all three of those fields, I guess, to to study oh, that. Yeah, she's, and that's what attracted me to it. She's smart. <laughs> I try. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's very clear. You must be smart. So, did you start with that focus in school, or did it develop over time, or? 
um, I would say I kind of developed over time. So I started off being strictly marine biology. I just wanted to study critters that lived in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And as I started getting involved with research, I found myself wanting to do biology and chemistry. And so I just kind of happened to follow down into the biogeochemistry path. Yeah. So um, where does where does biogeochemistry show up in our daily lives? What are some biogeochemical processes that Ooh. that we might experience? Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yeah, that's a great question. That's, that's a good question. I have no idea <laughs> because I'm not as smart as her. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I'm just going to use an example that you guys might be familiar with from the terrestrial world and thinking yes. about forests and streams. Uh-huh. So you have water running, and that's eroding away at the rocks, and so oh, that's kind of okay. where your geology comes into play. Yeah. And as that rock minerals break apart into the water, it's actually changing the chemistry of the water. Mm. Oh, yeah, like adding mm-hmm. you know, all the minerals and salts and yeah, irons or exactly. sulfur or whatever. Oh, I got it. So where's <laughs> That's the, a very good way of explaining it. Where's yeah. the bio then? Where, where does the well, bio come in? In that case, um, for example, all of this water that's in the rivers coming out into the oceans and dumping fresh water, and that affects your animals that are living there. Now they have to deal with these changes in the salt content of the water. Or the trout that you're fishing for lives in that water that has the dissolved minerals in it, and it absorbs those minerals into its body, and then when you fish and catch it and consume it, because you are a meat eater, Mm. you will then biologically because you're a bear (laughs) (laughs) basically i think (laughs) i think what we're getting at is that (laughs) that joe is a bear and (laughs) and biogeochemistry underpins a lot of things right i'm Mm -hmm. leaving this one alone (laughs) it it underpins a lot of things in our lives it does Mm -hmm. okay that's that makes a lot of sense now so in the ocean um how do you study something as, you know, as seemingly, um, it feels abstract, this this whole process, but how do you study it? Do you do things that you can see with the naked eye underwater or in the lab, or is it all, you know, you get an instrument and you get, take a reading? Like, what are the processes you go through in studying mm-hmm. this stuff? Um, so in my <laughs> case, a lot of what I do is take samples of seawater. So I'm basically just filling up bottles with seawater, and I take that into a laboratory and run it through some fancy instruments that can tell me something about the chemistry of that seawater. Mm. So from that chemistry, we can get at what processes are happening in the seawater. Now, is that in, I, I'm assuming that's from multiple locations and multiple depths, or is it all just from the surface? It depends on what you're studying. Um, so for my work, I was doing a lot of studies in these large outdoor tanks called mesocosms, and so they are very shallow, just about a meter, about three feet deep. Um, so that was just taking a bottle, just reaching with your reaching hand. Reaching with your yeah, hand so and going blub, blub, blub. But there are other people who study the biogeochemistry happening in the sediments. And oh, so, so you're not going offshore and like collecting samples and stuff. It's all lab work. For my PhD, I was doing going to the field to do the experiments and then, yeah, taking that all back into the lab to actually measure the chemistry. See mm. if I had read. <laughs> but I have done some work out in the ocean as well. So I did a research cruise where that's exactly what we did. We took samples from different depths and different places across the Indian and Southern Oceans. See, okay, I'm so. okay then. Wow, the yeah. Indian and Southern Oceans. That's amazing. You know, I, I have to say I saw a paper recently with you as a co-author on it. It said something like, 
um, taking the metabolic pulse of coral reefs worldwide or something like that. Yeah. That was great. I, I had no idea mm -hmm. until I kind of just uh, Google scholared your name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so is that what brought you to all those, those sites? Or is it something? So I didn't actually get to go to all those sites <sighs> for that paper. Oh, man. So that's a paper that has, I think, about 20 or 30 different co-authors on it. It's so huge. basically, yeah, we got data from each of those co-authors. Well, the postdoc in my lab got data from each of those co-authors. Mm -hmm. And I was one of those co-authors that provided some data for that study. Cool. But um, so today it's it's more a, a focus on ocean acidification. So mm -hmm. um, what from what we talked about and or read before, it's uh, it's a really hot topic in research today. Why is it such a hot topic? Because the oceans are getting hotter. <laughs> but that's mm, not that's the same thing. Topic. <laughs> that's a different topic. <laughs> Joe said. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think ocean acidification is just another hot topic because it does relate to climate change. It's actually somewhat related to the warming issue. And so <laughs> they often call ocean acidification um, the other CO2 problem or the other carbon dioxide problem because it's just another much, issue yeah, and we can see the effects. There's yeah. too much CO2 being absorbed by the oceans, mm -hmm. which is causing them to become more acidic. Or Correct, yes. yeah. With a yep. decrease in pH, if you remember your high school chemistry. Yep. Yeah. No, no, no. Because the oceans are actually, they, they're they not acidic naturally. They are a little bit uh, the other way, alkaline, I guess. They are alkaline, so. Which allows the corals to build their bones. That does allow corals to build their skeletons, yes. Their skeletons, yes. And But um, what's interesting to me is that, you know, we talk about coral reefs being potentially really threatened by acidification, but I don't hear as often about um, the other key players, the sponges, the seaweeds, mm -hmm. and you study all three, right? Yeah, so that's the work I'm planning to do here at Mode is mm -hmm. looking at all three and seeing how they all affect one another and how that might change under ocean acidification. So I, you know, I know why coral reefs, at least I know in a very simple way why coral reefs are important. They support so many thousands of marine species mm -hmm. and they help they support our fisheries <clears throat> but I can't say the same thing for seaweeds and sponges I don't know why it's important to study them can you <laughs> help us well, understand that yeah but if all the sponges were gone what would all those divers and tarpon springs do oh, Joe is Joe's just taking a dig at my hometown <laughs> just there actually <laughs> See, <that's laughs> he knows that I grew up see <laughs> grew up on the sponge docks yeah. yep okay Haley was a young sponge dock worker <laughs> when she grew up no but i was a sponger in high school she was a sponger that was our team yes but for real <laughs> why do sponges and seaweeds matter yeah um so the reason why i'm interested in the sponges and seaweeds is not specifically for the roles they are playing as contributing to the reef but because they're a competitor to corals oh. so they're actually fighting the corals for space and for resources on the reef if, um, if but how are the how are the sponges doing with the um, increase in acidity of the oceans? Are they is it better for them to be more acidic? That's a great question. We uh, don't know. <laughs> we don't actually know. And that's and why so you're doing it. That's why I'm trying to do this. Um, yeah. There's some people out there that are saying that basically instead of having coral reefs in the future, we're going to have sponge algae reefs. Sponge um, algae. So they, they we're saying that the sponges and the seaweeds or algaes will may predominate if these people are right. Potentially. How do we get at that question of what, what we think will happen? Mm -hmm. How do you study that? 
Um, so what I'm planning to do is actually collect some coral sponges and seaweeds from uh, reefs and put them in tanks and actually watch and see how they fight over time. Mm. Um, and see who actually little, wins. A little wrestling match. Okay, yeah, not, basically, not quite. Basically. Yes. <laughs> Sweet. Okay. Um, I'm going to sell tickets. I'm going to get a camera set up. We're I don't gonna, think we're gonna do a live I don't cast. think that it's going to be as dynamic uh, to watch as you think. Oh, really? <laughs> so well, you can have like see little ring, ring shrimp taking around the cards, you know? Okay. <laughs> you can actually see corals fighting, though. So they can? produce these little mesenterial filaments and... Mesenterial um, filaments. Yes. Yeah, it's basically like digestive yeah, and fibers. And so they, they look like little tubes coming out, sort of? Yeah, like strings, sort of. Oh, um, you can actually see them fighting. Fighting corals. Do, do, do they use those in their competition with sponges and algae, or do they use those with each other? How does that? Um, so there's been evidence that they sometimes use them with each other. We don't really know. Well, I don't really know if they use them with algae or sponges yet. So that's a good, Ooh. that's a question you may investigate, right? Exactly. Oh, okay. this yeah. is cool. Yeah, we can set this up. We can have our own coral fighting league. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> yeah. It's getting out of hand, Joe. <laughs> okay, sorry. It's getting We're out of hand. Reeling it back. Is this uh, the system where you'll do this uh, in our Florida Keys lab, right? Correct. Yeah. So, okay, so we have, Mode has the Elizabeth Moore International Center for Coral Reef Research and Restoration, which is your workplace. So um, with these coral sponges and uh, seaweed or algae will you what kind of systems will you be putting them into in our keys lab so in the keys lab we have these long shallow tanks which we put larger tanks into that's the same aquarium tanks you might have at home to put your fish in and so we can do smaller scale studies in these tanks so just putting a single coral and a single seaweed next to each other and seeing how they fight and we also have the larger mesocosm where we can set up communities and look at how that community changes over time. So I want to throw out that vocabulary word um, for our, our young listeners who want to be scientists. Mm -hmm. Mesocosm, does that mean that it's just a large-scale experimental system or does it, does it have to mimic a natural community? So typically they're used to mimic natural communities just because of their size. Cool. Um, what makes the mesocosm interesting to me is most of these systems that we're using are outdoors, and so you do get these natural changes in light, temperature, rain, mm -hmm. and it's also pulling in seawater from the ocean, and so you do get these natural seawater sources as well. Cool. Very cool. But you'll, And you also have a way down at the lab to acidify the water so you can compare and contrast, right? We do. So we actually take carbon dioxide gas and we bubble it straight into these very large header tanks. They're probably twice as tall as I am. Ah. Really? Um, yeah, they're huge. And so we bubble carbon dioxide until we get to a target level that's maybe predicted for 2100. Wow. Um, I yeah. didn't, wow. I, didn't, I, I thought you were maybe just like adding acid to the water, yeah. not doing it naturally like it would occur over time. So... Traditionally, people did add just acid to water to get acidification. But that's which is artificial. Like a thought yeah. process. Yeah, that's artificial. Um, yeah, Ooh. but that actually changes chemistry differently than adding carbon dioxide. Yeah, you're getting more of the true what it would be like. Exactly. Wow. Mm -hmm. I really, <clears throat> when I talk to um, our one of our other ocean acidification people here, I really struggle sometimes to understand the chemistry of how something becomes more acidified. I know that there are 
it's not simple and there are things that may buffer against it becoming more acidified out there in the wild. So mm-hmm. it's it's got to be a lot of uh, things to account for in an experiment. Definitely. So I think that was one of the big challenges or breakthroughs in the field is, oh, if we use carbon dioxide gas, we're actually getting something that's closer to what might happen in the future. Yes. Well, that's pretty fascinating. What's your favorite part of the the work? What do you like to do the most? Oh, that was my question. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite part is actually just getting out in the field. So mm. I love being out either on a boat or even in the water. And yeah, I live for those days. What, what do you think is the hardest or the biggest challenge you're facing right now with um, your your research? My biggest challenge right now is trying to set up a whole new research program. Um, so I'm coming in, I have some startup funds, and so it's trying to figure out, okay, what do I want to spend my money on? What's the best way to set up this experiment I want to do? Um, how can I get people to help me with these projects? So I'm getting some interns to assist with the research. So nice. you're basically coming in as the boss of this project, basically. Basically, you're, you're leading yeah, this. a brand new project. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So Exciting to do some new and, uh, and fresh, never done, is it? It's been done before or so not there's really been some work done on coils and seaweeds in that competition but there hasn't been much work done on sponges outside of the context of bioerosion gotcha that's mm-hmm. the context of what bioerosion so sponges actually can chip away at the coil skeleton and oh. live inside the coil skeletons <laughs> yeah so there's been a lot of work on that but i'm interested in these other roles of sponges i knew that i guess when they, that's when they say like a sponge is a boring sponge it yes. bores yes. Exactly. it's not dull it's not dull it, it actually bores into the coral mm. exactly yes. Sponges never thought of them as scary before. That's a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> now she's afraid to go swimming. Oh, no. <laughs> the sponges will not get me. They're very quick, those sponges. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, I, I wanted to point out that you are not only a, a great scientist, you're also a great communicator. You, you've done education work and outreach mm-hmm. work, and you want to continue that here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you have translated your science for people and how, how do you go about that? Um, so that's a really big challenge, especially during chemistry research. So a lot of people, as soon as they hear chemistry, they Their eyes to, roll, yeah. Yeah, shy away, oh, cringe. <laughs> So I actually took a fellowship when I was in grad school that partnered with a high school teacher. And so I learned how to translate my scientist for high school level, which is wow. also very good for the public audience as well. So I know a lot of people tend to not take science past high school. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. You know, often we, I was in a science journalism program and they often say, you know, middle school, high school level, try to try to write for that audience, mm-hmm. which is challenging with science. It's challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Have you had any really good or, or challenging experiences that sort of helped you become better at this? I think just continuing to volunteer mm-hmm. and participate in these different outreach and education programs. So every time you go to teach a class, there's a different challenge. It's a different group of students with different backgrounds. and. They're trying to figure out how do you cater the needs of everyone. So you basically, you you know your audience. That's how, that's one of the how, ways that's you, you succeed. Have to do. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, and plus she's on this podcast. She is. And she's actually here at our Sarasota campus to speak in a lecture that is, I believe, sold out. And that's another way to, you know, disseminate her <laughs> science. So if there was one one thing you wanted everybody to, to take <laughs> from this podcast, um, what would that be? 
What what would Heather Page Joe asks have the to hard say? questions, very <laughs> broad questions. Yes, but if if you walking away from here and you you were walking away and you suddenly stopped and said, "Wow, I wish I had said that." Um, I think I would want to give advice to some of the younger listeners on here. You know, just follow your dreams, follow your passions. I was always told that I couldn't go past sixth grade in school due to my disability. Wow. And so, you know, if you work hard, if you really want something, like, go after it. Just give it a shot. That's incredible. You see, if you hadn't told me, I would not have known. Is it just a congenital hearing disability? They don't know. I wasn't diagnosed until I was three and a half. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, so they don't really know what the cause is. But, but it's been lifelong. And you've been lifelong, yeah. And you've succeeded very well, so mm-hmm. congratulations. An inspiration, as I would like to say. Yes. We appreciate and we appreciate you being here. You've educated us a lot. Um, chemistry is indeed not scary. It can be very fun. Very <laughs> fun. Yeah. yeah. It's fun with Heather. It's okay. Let's, uh, it's fun with Heather. Yes. But thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. So um, we're signing out. We will see you all in another two weeks for another episode of 2C Fans at Moat. <laughs>